Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another week of Ranching Reboot. This episode sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Today's guests, we go all the way to the other side of the pond. From England, we've got Alex Johnson from Sheep Leap Limited, who's a self-described contract sheep manager. So Alex, welcome to Ranching Reboot. Thanks very much for having me along, Brian. It's uh, oh. great to talk to you. Yeah, so what time is it there? It's uh, it's six hours after after us, so it's a little, it's end of your day. Yeah, it's 2100 on a Friday night. I'm just about to uh, crack a bit, to be fair. Well, don't let that, you know, don't let that stop you. Yeah. Might help the last half go a little easier. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you at? Sure. So um, I'm 37 and uh, I'm currently farming with my girlfriend, Rosie. Uh, originally, I'm from the northeast of England and I grew up in a rural area, but not farming. During the holidays from school, I used to get quite bored, sort of sat at home. So I asked my mother if I could go and help out on some local farms. And there was a, a traditional sheep and beef farm, an English sheep and beef farm that I helped with during school holidays from about the age of 13 to when I finished school. And at that time, employment in agriculture didn't look great. So after I finished school, I joined the army for a bit of adventure and see the world. Oh, right on. And then, uh, after seven years service and a few exciting times overseas, I left and just sort of meandered about for a bit doing various things and decided I'd quite like to go back farming. So at 30, I started exploring opportunities in agriculture in the UK. And um, I'll probably take a little moment now to explain about UK agriculture and that it's, yeah. it's shaped by subsidy an awful lot. So, if you control land for 365 days or more, that entitles you to claim a subsidy through the British government from the EU. And it's, it's a little strange in that you not only have to have control of that acre of land, you have to have an entitlement, which is a separately traded commodity, which enables you to claim that subsidy. But on a lowland farm, which is generally what I am, these subsidies are worth $116.73 per acre per year. And that's money that gets paid into the bank account every January normally, but sometimes it can be a bit later. Okay. And that's a base rate. And then that can be enhanced by uh, environmental schemes and other things like that. I think I watched Clarkson, Clarkson's farm uh, when it came out on Amazon prime. And that was some of the things that he was doing, like, you know, tearing stuff up to, you know, turn up crops to put in pollinator strips, things like things like that. Yeah. And I think that gave a lot of folks kind of a, a look into just a little bit of, of what it's like in the UK in agriculture. Definitely, definitely. But these area payments that I describe uh, are only 20 years that system's only been in place for the last 20 years. Previous to that, there were various production subsidies. So you would get paid uh, an annual rate on per head of livestock you carried or per ton of grain you produced or whatever. Okay. But that, that changed, like I say, about 20 years ago. But that only applies to people that are in control of land 365 days a year, and you've got to have the entitlement to do so. 
And um, so it's another capital barrier to entry, basically. Oh, okay. Because I, uh, and when I how do, how like just let's rabbit trail on those entitlements for a second. Yeah. How does that work? So, you know, we're familiar with the with the system of you know you have a title to a piece of property and that says that you own that. Yep. You own that, and you basically get to do you know we have different property rights, obviously. So how how is it different over there? So there's a freehold land, which is is you own it. That's that's title. And then there's a, a lease land, and there was a a piece of legislation called the Agricultural Holdings Act, which enshrined in law the rights of tenant farmers. And that's, I think, from the 70s, and or even earlier, in fact. But basically, that was three generation tenancies. So if if I was a tenant farmer, then my son and my grandson could inherit that tenancy, provided they met certain criteria, which is getting the main of their income from the farm and things like that. Okay. And that, um, I think that dates back to the agricultural depression after the war, where people were renting land for not very much just to keep it tidy because landlords were struggling to get tenants. Okay. Land ownership in the UK is quite, um, a lot of it dates back to the Enclosure Act, which is in the, 1800s or maybe even earlier so we have a lot of very large estates in the uk which are owned by aristocratic families and have done for well some of them a thousand years dating back to the norman invasion but these families generally don't want to farm the land directly themselves so it's been tenanted out okay okay and then um that aha was replaced by a farm business tenancy which is a, a, it can be a, a term of whatever you want, but generally it's three to five to 15 or 20 years where a tenant would take on that piece of land and then it would revert back to the landlord who could rent it out again or farm it himself or whatever he wanted, really. But there's, um, in order to have the subsidy claim, the BPS subsidy claim, you need to have these entitlements and people that were in control of land when that legislation came in 20 years ago, were awarded the entitlements for that land. Okay. And obviously, short-term tenants have, you know, turned over land very many times. So there's a bank of these entitlements that's held centrally by the government. And if you're a new farmer, you can apply to the bank to get entitlements if you're renting land. Okay. But if you can't get them granted from the bank, you have to buy them from somebody that is, has excess entitlements. Okay, um, are these entitlements like tied to a specific parcel of land? No. Okay. No, so, the, so there's two separate strands to this claim. You've got to have it in control of land. Whether through being acres. a tenant or actually having title. Yes. Okay. And then you've got to have entitlements to claim the subsidy as well. Okay. Uh, that seems like an extremely straightforward and easy process to navigate. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, like I said, there's, there's obviously a capital requirement. Generally, it's it's typically about three years worth of claims, but it, because it's all paid in euros per hectare from the EU, the um, exchange rate can affect the exact amount. Okay, I see. But starting from scratch, so to speak, um, 
I decided that that wasn't possible for me. No. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> and then uh, I also decided that um, it wasn't possible for me to go out and achieve the necessary critical mass of livestock straight away through purchase. So I put some adverts on social media and that led me to a few contacts and someone introduced me to the concept of adjustment or tax sheep as we call them custom grazing you guys know it okay so i was living in gloucestershire in the southwest of the uk at the time and somebody explained this concept to me and i thought oh yeah that's brilliant so i sat down with the yellow pages and wrote letters to 100 landowners that were listed in the phone book and a couple of them got back to me and said yeah we have dairy cattle they don't graze during the winter but we don't want excess grass on our pasture at that time because it can overmature and then the quality drops. Right. So traditionally, they would get sheep in to graze it. And um, normally those sheep would come from Wales, which could be a couple of hours away. But dairy farmers don't want to be chasing sheep and doing electric fencing and things. And Welsh farmers in Wales are too far away to respond quickly if sheep get out. So that was where I carved out a little niche for myself. I would rent the dairy grass for the winter and then i would contract with sheep landowners from sorry sheep owners from wales who would send me their stock and i would custom graze them for up to six months through the winter and charge a, a weekly management fee per head okay it seems like a pretty similar business model yeah it was it was really good to be fair i learned a lot and it enabled me to achieve a critical mass of livestock the first really from day one so in, in year one, I had uh, 400 head in two mobs of 200. And I only had a Labrador at the time, just, you know, I didn't have a sheepdog because mm. they can be quite expensive and I didn't want to rush out and spend a lot of money on something that I maybe not like or would want to do something different. Right. But I, I could send her left and right and just her presence was enough to move the sheep. And then um, I got... Um, relatively good reputation in the area for paying on time, removing stock on time and not leaving dead animals lying around. Because that's another peculiarity of uh, UK livestock farming. If you have an animal die, you've got to remove it within 24 hours. You can't leave it in the field. What do you have to do with it? Take it to an approved contractor and pay a fee for them to incinerate it. You can't just go like bury it over the hill out of sight from everybody? No. That used to be the case, but in 2001, we had a nationwide livestock epidemic of foot and mouth. And the biosecurity concerns during that time period led to this legislation of dead stock disposal. Okay. Another yeah. more government rules that are fun. Yeah, it gets even better, though. Every livestock animal in the UK, well, in terms of sheep and cattle, as a unique government assigned ID number. I'm all about transparency and traceability, but I'm not about compulsory. Yeah. <laughs> compulsory animal ID. I'm not, I'm not about that. And um, all sheep must have an electronic ID ear tag, which can be read with an RFID reader. And those sheep must be ear tags latest by nine months of age or when they leave the farm of their birth. And every time you move an animal to a new farm, you have to submit paperwork to the government saying 
what farm it's come from, what animal it is with the ID numbers and what farm it's going to. Oh, I bet, I bet you have a lot of fun with those reports. Yes. And then <laughs> with cattle, they have the same, except they must be tagged and reported to the government within 28 days of birth. Okay. And then that animal is issued a paper passport, which has the animal's ID number and the mother's ID number and breed and the sire's breed, if known. Uh, that's just for a commercial animal, you know, for a standard killing beef animal. Right. And that paper passport has to go with the animal throughout its entire life. Yeah. Like a human being. <laughs> Here's your social security number too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, what's next? Are they going to give them all iPhones so they can talk to their friends? It's... Ah, okay. And the way, the way that this system is enforced is you can be dragged through the courts and criminally prosecuted for failing it, but that's quite a lot of hassle and there can be appeals and things. Generally, that BPS claim that I talked about, that subsidy, you will be inspected randomly on a period of one to five years. And if mm. your records are found incomplete in terms of livestock records and reporting, you can lose a percentage of that BPS claim. Okay. And, and there is no appeal on that. It's, and there's no trial for it. And you said that some that was like $116 an acre. Did I hear that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So there are some very large landowners in the UK that can have several thousand acres. So their BPS claim annually can be upwards of a million dollars. Okay. Yeah. So they have a, a very large incentive to get these records and reports right. Uh, yes. Yes. For $116 an acre, there's a lot of, there's a lot of office work that I would do for that. Yes. Definitely. And it's, it's maybe slightly different from your circumstance in the UK in that generally our land is a lot more productive. Lowland I would agree with that. About. I mean, there are I said, I, he said it would, was more productive in the UK. And I, yes, I would definitely agree with that, especially where I'm at. Okay. So why? Yeah. I don't know anything about your side um, of the world. Climate Climatically. Rainfall. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. We have a temperate maritime climate in England specifically. So like how many growing days do you get a year? Does, do you ever have a time where your grass is completely dormant and like, what's your rainfall like and temperatures like? I mean, it varies quite widely across the UK, but where I started farming in Gloucestershire, it's a dairy area and the grass would almost grow year round. We'd maybe get a, a slight decline. There'd be yeah. a quite serious decline in the grass growth period. I, I'm remiss. I haven't converted my kilos per hectare here into pounds per acre. But I mean, it's <laughs> 2.2 pounds per kilo and 2.47 acres per hectare. So roughly, they, they translate. Good grass growing farms in the UK will grow 20,000 pounds of dry matter grass per acre per annum. Oh, yeah, that's that's probably close to 10 times the grass I'm going to grow this year. Definitely. <laughs> Slightly more but, productive. 
there are areas of the UK that would be a lot closer to your production in the the uplands and the mountain regions. But then that's probably still going to be a completely different quality of feed. I'm going to say that like Florida, where you get so much rain, but it's not a lot of nutrition in the grass. A, a little bit. In the, the proper upland areas of the UK, it's not grass, it's heather. And heather moorland is actually one of the rarest environments in the world. There's less of that than there are of Amazonian rainforest, for example. Is that like black soil? Like it's got really good peat? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And these, these, these high peats are quite well preserved. The lowland peats in the UK have very much been drained. They're normally found in the east of the country and they've been drained in a, a very high quality growing areas for root vegetables and salad crops. Okay. And the returns per acre for that can be fairly mind blowing. Vegetable crops are definitely, definitely high return. The problem is they're high, high labor. Yes. Yeah. And UK agriculture in that regard relies on immigrants from Eastern Europe. I think U.S. agriculture in that regard relies on immigrants from south of the border to do most of the vegetable picking in California. Yeah. Quite a similar situation here, except the U.K. has damaged its labor import capabilities through Brexit in 2016. Right. There is no longer freedom of movement. Uh, the final effects of that still aren't still haven't been worked out have they no they're, they're continuing okay i can only imagine how much fun that is trying to wrap your head around that yeah uh, we could probably do a whole podcast series on that yeah we don't need to we don't need to chase those rabbits today no definitely not but going back to, to my farming career today so i started year one was 400 head year two was 2000 head as i got more oh. land and i i made contacts and it's quite gratifying in that all my customers would speak to each other and my landowners would speak to each other and then they start recommending me to other people. And it, the business sort of grew quite organically from there and it was good. Uh, and it was really, really useful for networking. And then uh, year three was two and a half thousand heads. And then year four, we had a drought in the UK. There was really not much forage about at all. So I, I dropped back to 1200 head. But the beauty of custom grazing was being able to flex my stock numbers so quickly to what feed I had on offer and carrying capacity. Yes, and that's extremely important in a drought year. Definitely, yeah. You know, a yeah. lot of us here in the U.S. are facing drought, and um, I hope everybody's got their drought planned out and tuned up, and they've been looking at it because I think a lot of us are going to need it this year. Yeah, there's a lot of podcasts I listen to from people in extreme environments like yours and working cows with the podfather, Clay Connery, and then also a lot of Australian <laughs> Australian podcasts, and they have a, a great experience of drought there as well. And the key takeaway I get from all of these people is you must be able to flex your stock numbers to match your carrying capacity organically. There is no economic benefit to trying to purchase feed to feed your way through a drought yes yes 100 percent. you will run out of cash before it rains or there's a very big risk 
Yeah, it never makes sense to 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 even buy that first load of hay to try to make it through a drought. Yeah. So okay. I guess the, the the key is the decision points, and when you have those decision points in time, and and making exactly. sure that they're met. So you made it through a drought. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I say drought. It was just. It didn't rain as much. It wouldn't be anywhere near the experience of you guys or the guys in Australia for a drought. Your drought's probably like forty inches of rain or something crazy. Yeah, that's it. And um, during the summers, so when I didn't have sheep on tack on custom grazing, I would go day contracting or I would go and contract lamb for people. In the UK, there's two different lambing systems. You can have a, an indoor lambing system, which is what that lady in Canada does, who's very famous on YouTube, whose name escapes me. <coughs> but you, you basically have all the animals in a shed and mm -hmm. you have the ewes in a big pen and you feed them hay and concentrates. And then as they lamb, you would pull that family unit out and put them in a small pen for 24 hours and then transition them slowly to outside. What's the theory very... behind putting them in that small pen together? Just to make sure they bond? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's the system I grew up doing for my neighbors in Northumberland, in the northeast of England. Uh, and then traditionally, that would be done using a, a composite sheep or a crossbreed sheep. So those flocks aren't self-replacing, they're terminal flocks. Okay. So you, you would have the maternal line that's bought in and then you use a terminal sire. Uh, and every animal born on the farm would be for killing. Okay. The small exception is when you get a, a mule you which is the the very popular maternal line crossbreed in the UK, and it's a cross between a, a hill breed, so from a mountainous area or an upland area, and they're very tough sheep, but they have a poor carcass shape and low litter size, and they would be crossed with a, a blue faced Leicester or a border Leicester. Pardon me, border Leicester ram. And that would add some fairly moderate improvement in carcass, but it would dramatically increase litter size. Okay. And that gives you your mule ewe, which is the mainstay of the, the lowland flock in the UK. And then that ewe would be crossed with a terminal sire. And it used to be the Suffolk. But in the last 30 years, the Suffolk is a breed has lost its way. It's been chasing show ribbons. And yeah. market share has dropped dramatically. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and some of those first cross terminal females can be sold as breeders as well okay some people really really like them so it would be a like a charolais angus i mean smoke calves really sell well i mean yeah smoke calves do well here definitely uh, and it's similar but it's a very high capital system. It's labor intensive and you need to have a lot of infrastructure. And then there's a lot of purchased inputs to go into those use. Right. You know, the, the mule ewe is a big animal. She'll be, I mean, some of them, the Suffolk cross mule use, for example, could be over 200 pounds, 250 pounds. Pretty good size little sheep. Yeah, definitely. And they take a lot of feeding all through the winter to the extent that their maintenance during late stage pregnancy cannot be met from grazed forage alone. They have to be fed a, a soya based compound. Interesting. Interesting.
And then the other lambing system is an outdoor lambing system, which is sometimes referred to as a New Zealand lambing system. And that's basically where the sheep get on with it themselves outside. Okay. I was thinking you were going to tell me that there was, there was some other trick to it, but yeah, that they just do what they do out in the, out in the paddock. Yeah, uh, the trick for lambing outside is genetics and feeding during the winter and, the, and picking the time of year as well. The indoor lambing system was very popular among people that would try and lamb in February and March which is quite early in the year. But if they can get those lambs and push creep feed into them straight away from birth almost, you can have a finished animal ready for the Easter trade, which is a, a traditional high price. So I just put my notes here. In the UK, our lamb price for dead weight, which is what I've gone on because that's the most easily accessed figures, is very volatile and we can have a 50% swing across the year. Wow. So it, it, it can go from £2.10, sorry, $2.10 to $3.78 per pound of carcass weight. And that translates to um, $235 to $423 a hundred weight. Such a swing. That's. Yep. And that's for a, an in spec. Uh, supermarket carcass which would be a, a carcass weight of 33 to 48 pounds which would how, roughly trans sorry say again how much can you talk about like how how the lamb gets from your farm or wherever you're at to the grocery store like what can you describe what the like the lamb slaughter that sheep slaughter chain works yeah, so the lamb is born on, on the farm of its birth and it can either be finished on that farm, raised to slaughter weight and condition, or it can be sold as a store, which would happen from midsummer to late autumn, really, depending on the grass and feed available on the farm of its birth. And slaughter animals will go either to a, an auction mart, a sale barn, okay. and then buyers will bid for them. And the, the process is a are represented by those buyers, either direct employees or third-party contractors or agents. Or alternatively, producers can contract directly with the, an abattoir with a processor. Okay. And you can just, uh, you'd ring up your local abattoir agent and he would either come on the farm and help draw your slaughter lambs for you, or if you work with him a lot and you have a relationship, he could trust you to draw your own slaughter lambs and then a lorry would arrive and off they'd go. Check comes in the mail two weeks later? Yeah, sometimes, or you get a box payment quite quickly. It depends who you want to go with. Okay. But it sounds like there's a competitive market at least, whether you're at the sale barn or whether you're trying to sell off the farm. Yes, it's slightly distorted in that we have a scheme called farm assurance, which is an optional scheme. It's, it's, <laughs> Sounds like more you, government, more government. Yeah, it is. So farm assurance is owned by a, several organizations, which include a representation from the retailers and government 
and farmers uh, representation body. And, and it was sold initially to farmers. It's relatively new again, I think about 20 years as um, this would allow you to access a market premium for your goods. So you'd have the base market price. And then if you were farm assured, you could get the premium. And as these things do, the premium standard soon became the only standard. Right. So rather than getting a premium, if you're not farm assured, you are locked out of certain markets. Okay. And, and that's had less of an impact, <coughs> pardon me, for beef and lamb sales because we have still retained the auction marks which enable us to sell via a third party and people have to come and bid for the stock. But for grain and dairy for milk, there is almost no alternative to being farm assured. What about like uh, for hogs? No, the UK hog industry is almost entirely vertically vertically integrated. Really? Yep. It's it's been a in the news quite a lot recently, actually, because there are very few independent pig producers left in the UK, and in the past eighteen months, there is a lot less than there used to be. Similar a lot story of the, that we've heard from this side of the water. Yeah. And we have had similar horror stories of large numbers of sows being aborted or finished pigs shot on farm because there wasn't the kill space available for them. Or it, the media has said there wasn't the kill space available for them, but I used to operate a, a finishing barn for pigs, so a, a pig CAFO effectively. And it was great cash flow and... I didn't entirely align with my sort of regenerative principles, but you can't be green if you're in the red. And that was in contract with a, a vertical integrator. So it was a, an abattoir, a meat packer, owned the sow herd, and then they would contract with individuals like myself to raise their wiener pigs through to slaughter weight. And it was these packers that were saying, due to COVID, we didn't have the kill space in order to take finished pigs from their independent producers. But because I was on the edge of that industry, I made some contacts and would speak to them. And if you compare year on your slaughtering figures on a weekly basis, there was almost no change. In fact, during the supposed covid downturn and especially in the last few months we've been killing more pigs nationally than the five-year average so uh, some commentators believe it's almost a power play by the big processors to squeeze out the few remaining independent producers it worked well right? i mean they're probably right it's i can't help but think so just a few days ago um Christopher Leonard was out on a podcast. He's the guy that wrote the book, The Meat Racket. I think it came yes. out in 2014. Have you read it, Alex? No, but I've read a lot around the edges of the the contraction of the U.S. meatpacking industry into, was it four main players? JBS? Tyson, National like. and Cargill. Yes, and there's that key part of legislation that's been disregarded and they're almost able to control what is it 80 percent of killed cattle in the u.s 
85, I think 85% is what they control is what, is what they control versus alternative marketing arrangements. And that's horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) And it, it mirrors tragically. It mirrors what I've read of the Republic of Ireland as well. Oh, really? So there's, yeah, there's, there's a large meat packer in Ireland. He's also present in the UK as well. And they're um, called Anglo-Irish Beef Processors, or ABP. And it's run by an individual called Larry Goodman, who is clearly an extremely talented businessman, but he's also very ruthless. And his boast is that he likes to say he bought the Irish beef trade for a penny a kilo. So he was offering farmers yeah. an extra cent a kilo for their cattle if they went direct to him and missed out the auction mark, missed out the sale barn. And so there's now very few sale barns in dealing in beef in the Republic of Ireland, and he almost dictates the price. Sounds about right. Yep. Yeah. And he has an enormous political power because of that as well. He's been able to assert influence over the legislature to bring out favorable legislation for him the one that springs to mind is the animal byproducts legislation so as per disposal of dead stock disposal of slaughter waste is similar like blood and, and fifth quarter effectively you know blood and entrails and hides and he was able to get the irish government to pass something which limited the amount that that slaughter waste can be transported from point of slaughter, which has really put the dampener on anybody trying to open up a independent abattoir in Ireland, because okay. he also controls most of that fifth quarter disposal. I'm starting to understand now. <laughs> yeah, it all fits together in a quite Machiavellian way. So it's it's really important in the UK that we retain our sale bonds. Yeah, that that cash and trade and nego- that cash trade and having that second or third buyer there to bid up, you know, it's there's just one buyer there. It's going to go cheap. If there's two, yeah. you're going to have some price discovery. If there's three, you've got competition. Yeah. So a large proportion of the UK lamb crop slaughtered was exported to Europe. We would import almost the same tonnage back from places like New Zealand. That sounds oddly familiar. Yeah, but it was carcass balancing. So we were exporting whole carcasses and importing loins and legs. Okay. Like to fulfill our total consumption of lamb chops in the UK would take animals equivalent to double our kill. And then there'd be a lot of other product that you'd have to find another market for. So I, I yes. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. But the the effects of this Brexit haven't been felt by the industry in terms of uh, slaughter prices yet, because the Chinese uh, swine flu epidemic has meant they have a huge demand for lamb and beef. And although the UK doesn't export directly, they're sucking up a lot of product from Australia and New Zealand. So that's not being imported to the UK. So that gap's being filled by domestic production and also COVID 
has had an effect, a positive effect. The, the 2019 African swine fever epidemic in the Chinese hog industry has been com almost completely missed by our media in the United States. Like, wow. it's just been totally skipped over. That's, that's incredible. I mean, there are a few stories floating around, but it, it's not necessarily common knowledge. I, I, to this day, I, every few days I, I talk to somebody and I talk about the African swine fever in China and they had no idea. And I think that's true in the UK as well. You sort of archetypical man on a clap of omnibus won't be aware of it at all. But we're such an urbanized society in the UK, the vast majority of our population aren't aware of agriculture or how it happens, really. The COVID um, shutdowns and things led to some gaps on supermarket shelves in the UK. And the retailers, the supermarket retailers are such a, an awesome PR machine that they came out as the heroes there. They were the ones responsible for keeping people fed during the pandemic. And it's, it's fairly been missed, yeah. Okay. But going back to the UK lamb slaughter chain, there is a, a third way, so to speak. Some retailers are now offering to contract directly with farmers. So like grocery stores where you go to get your, yeah. your produce, your yeah. meat. Okay. They're, yeah. they're going directly have, to producers. Yes, offering contracts. Interesting. And they will uh, they will guarantee a, a price throughout the year. I'm, I'm not party fully to them because I'm not on the contract and, and there's a lot of non-disclosure agreements around that. Although through my day contracting, I have worked with customers who are on these contracts and, and I have explored these contracts with the retailers talking to their representatives, but I, I haven't attempted to take one or take one myself but it, it was traditionally quite a good price contracting directly with the retailer and then during that 2019 epidemic we hit record prices for finished lamb in spring which is traditionally where we get our highest price anyway but these prices were an extra 25 percent above what i quoted you earlier so close to $5 a pound? Yeah. Wow. And some producers broke their supermarket contracts and, and went back to the sale barn. Not very many, but some. So I, I think, or I'm led to understand the retailers had to quite dramatically adjust their contract pricing. But I'm certain they're not doing that for the producer's benefit and it's quite an onerous paperwork burden to achieve that contract i it, it seems like it's it seems like farming in britain is just paperwork on top of paperwork on top of paperwork yeah yeah there's quite a heavy <laughs> burden definitely definitely i think those supermarket contracts <clears throat> if i was going to be incredibly cynical are an expensive data mining operation 
Okay. Can you, you, would you like to explain that a little bit? The supermarkets want to understand farm economics and understand farm systems and they're starting to request carbon audits of their producers and they're not doing that for producer benefit they will do that for two reasons one is to give a prq to their customers so we pay our producers a great price you know we're market leading on our price and they can splash that across advertising what's a prq what what's that sorry a a prq like a, a, a public relations exercise Okay. That they can use that to attract customers by giving a good headline like we pay our farmers, you know, a great fair price. And our farmers are carbon neutral, or our farmers are cutting carbon emissions per kilo of lamb or liter of milk. But okay. let's put a pin in carbon. I definitely kind of want to circle yeah. back to that later. So go on. But these producer contracts do not fulfill all of the supermarket demand. So that gives them their good headline figure, but the data mining enables them to get an industry average of cost of production, which they can inform their buyers as to what to pay for the backfill of their order. So, you know, they have aligned contracts for producers to fulfill 10% of their demand, for example, and then that other 90%, they can really screw the producer because they know what their guys are cost of production is. Huh. That sounds familiar. Yeah. There's an awful <laughs> lot. There's an awful lot of, of parallels across both sides of the pond. Yeah, that, that sounds that sounds very familiar. Using contracts and a large share of the market power to drive down the cash price. Sounds yeah. very, very familiar. Definitely. Well, just to circle back to the uh, subsidy in the UK. If you look at the the government figures, which we get released every year, we have a a government organization called the Agricultural Horticultural Development Board, and they take a levy on every slaughter lamb and slaughter cow and and things like that. And that's used to fund producer knowledge and exchange. And from the data they release, a significant proportion of UK sheep and beef farmers would be more profitable not farming. That's probably true on this side of the uh, on this side of the water too. So, subsidy makes up a, a, a massive proportion of their annual farm profit for almost all of them, but a significant minority. Their annual farm profit is less than their subsidy. Wow. So, so they're actively losing subsidy money by farming. Uh, it's such a strange, it seems like such a strange place, yet y'all speak English. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of differences. But, you know, through my exposure to the podcasts and talking to people on social media, there's a lot of similarities as well. It seems like it, even, you know, even in the meat marketing and, and the slaughter chains for both for lamb, I can't even imagine yes. what it's like for beef there. You know, you kind of describe that situation up in Ireland. That doesn't sound great. <laughs> no, I, I'm pleased. I'm not an Irish beef producer for sure. The slight, um, 
special thing about UK lamb in particular is we have such a huge domestic halal market. Yes. So post-Second World War, a lot of workers from former British Empire colonies were imported into the UK to backfill the war casualties in the labour market. And so we have very large Muslim populations in the UK and, and they love lamb. And that really puts us a floor in the market for all lamb or all sheep meat, really. Without, um, without the halal trade, a cull you, an end of life you in the UK would not be worth very much at all. I'm over here. I'm told that there are groups uh, of Muslims and groups of Latinos that will come out. Like you can sell them the animal on the hoof and they'll come out and take it, cut it up right there, throw it in free, throw it in coolers and take it home. Is, yeah. is there a separate halal slaughter chain or is that how, is that similar to how it's done over there? No, no, there's a separate halal slaughter chain. So there are some, uh, smaller independent abattoirs that are dedicated to halal slaughter and they're found typically nearby concentrations of, of Muslim consumers and then also some of the larger uh, abattoirs will have a dedicated day which will be for halal slaughter makes sense and it's, it's quite a contentious issue in the UK because a proportion of halal slaughter is non-stun so the animal's fully conscious we have to accept their religion, right? We have to well, accept their customs. To be honest, Brian, I don't have a problem with it because it's only it's only sort of 16 to 20% of UK lamb. UK halal lamb is non-slaughter. Most lamb in the UK is stunned principally by um, electric probes either side of the brain prior to the cut. Some of that non-stun halal gets what's called a post-cut stun. So they, they, they cut the throat and then they apply the stun. But also having been overseas where things are done differently, I've sort of witnessed and taken part in non-stun slaughter of sheep. And I don't personally feel there's any problem with it with sheep. The animal loses consciousness very quickly provided it's a, a good clean cut across, you know, both major blood vessels. Um, Personally, I, I have a slightly different view on cattle because they've got the the artery that runs through the center of the spine and that can maintain blood supply to the brain despite the throat being cut. And, and I should, yeah, I'm not entirely comfortable with that. But the, the point remains, without the halal trade, the UK coal you price would be very much lower than what it is. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Uh, and in fact, if you look at their figures from the five-year averages you can identify when major muslim festivals are because you will see a big spike in the kolu price in the calendar i mean again that, that that makes that makes total sense and i imagine there's some smart sheep guys out there that are raising animal rather raising halal sheep specifically to time with you know with their festivals and with their needs yeah, absolutely. There are some uh, very experienced sheep dealers who make a lot of money buying used sort of end-of-life females at the, the cheaper parts of the year and then running them through to the festival. But the, the problem with the festival is that the Islamic religion uses the lunar calendar. 
So that's going so to these, change a little. Yeah, these festivals move to the left two weeks every year. Which is challenging, but fortunately not, not a challenge I have to deal with. Okay. So let, let's back up and chase that carbon audit rabbit. Because carbon markets and, well, carbon carbon and agriculture is still very much undefined and it's still kind of a wild west and almost almost kind of a gold rush right now here in the states what's it like over there it's very similar (laughs) it's not something i've got direct experience with because i'm i'm not a landowner so i don't have exposure to these kind of people but from what i read in the farming press large conglomerates are buying up farms in the uk with the express purpose of planting them with trees to offset carbon for those not watching the video i just did a huge eye roll (laughs) it's horrendous brian it's greenwashing of the worst kind and it's it's really damaging because we are losing domestic production and these polluting companies aren't changing their practices it's the 21st century equivalent of middle-age indulgences where the church would sell you a bit of paper saying you're forgiven your sins for the right amount of gold. Yes. Yes. And as a side note to that, there are also firms that are trying to contract with landowners to offset their carbon, whereby they would plant their farm in trees, but the landowner remains the freehold owner of that land. And I think that's incredibly dangerous because that market is currently totally unregulated. And again, I'm, I'm not a landowner, so I'm not directly exposed to it, but a lot of landowners in the UK or farm owner operators are panicking about the loss of this BPS subsidy because that's what I forgot to mention earlier. The government has announced that this subsidy is being phased out over the next five years. And by that's- 2027, nobody will receive any that $116 an acre is just going to phase out over five years and go away. Yes. That could be a lot of fun. It's a generational change in the, the industry. This is, this is the biggest change of our generation in UK agriculture. And that that's going to change a lot of things. That's, you know, like you were just mentioning earlier about how far underwater some of these farms are even getting subsidy yep um that i mean that's really going to change the game that's gonna that's gonna put people out of business you know and here that mean that the land would change hands probably get bought by you know the big guy down the road who just needs more acres yeah or by one of these conglomerates to plant in trees to greenwash (sighs) one of these days they'll figure out that planting that the only real way to store the carbon is in the soil. Yes, a tree can can actually store, can have some carbon in it, but it's not permanently stored until that tree becomes part of soil. What, what, one of the ideas I've seen floated about for that is grow trees and then harvest the tree trunks and then submerge the tree trunks beneath the seabed to lock away that carbon. It's madness. 
a full life cycle analysis of that surely would show that you would exceed more carbon burning the hydrocarbon fuels to harvest and transport and then submerge than whatever you could lock up in those tree trunks. I thought you were going to say something really crazy, like chip them into biomass so they can be burned as green energy. <laughs> well, this, this is my next point. We about almost, I can see it from my house. We have the Drax power station in the UK and this is produces green energy for the UK. And the way it does that is by importing chipped redwoods from the States. And that's then burned to produce green electricity. Yeah, uh, that's that's really green. Harvested in the U.S., chipped here, like yep. chipped, packaged, put on a ship, yep. across the water, unloaded, put on a truck, and shipped to that plant and burned. And they call that environmentally friendly. And that plant receives government subsidies because it's green. When does the madness ever end? <laughs> yeah it's uh it's insane isn't it yes so this this carbon market and and people trying to get landowners into carbon schemes a lot of landowners are ripe for the, being exploited by this because they're losing this dps subsidy this 116 dollars an acre and they're looking for a replacement but currently, the carbon trading market in the UK is unregulated. And like you say, it's the Wild West. Some of these schemes I've heard about, you plant your farm in trees, but you contract to keep it in those trees for 80 or up to 110 years. So you're properly selling out the family silver there because you might only get payments for this tree scheme until... Well, maybe until next year when the company goes bust. Yeah. Yeah, five years maybe. And then we have um, legislation in the UK which prevents clearing of forest. So once those trees are over a certain trunk diameter, they count that they come within this legislation. And if you want to fell more than twenty cubic meters, which is you know not a lot, that could be one very large tree. Right. You have to apply to the government for a permit to do so. And they will come out and do an ecological impact assessment. And, you know, some biology major with a clipboard will tell you whether or not you can plant, you can cut down these trees. Uh, yeah, again. <laughs> there, I mean, there yeah. are places like that here. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, California, you can't, you can't even look at a tree with a chainsaw without an environmental study, a permit, and, and forestry on site watching you do it almost. Yeah, so there are places like that here, and I, I get that. It's like the road to hell is paved in good intentions, and this is one of those things. You know, at some point we need to, pe you know, we need to preserve some of these things. We need to preserve some trees. We need to preserve some prairies. We need to preserve some habitat. But throwing a blanket rule out, and you, I guess there's just a lot of a lot of collateral damage in things that are well-intentioned, especially by government. Absolutely. And, and a lot of time, these clear felling licenses will only be issued if you say you'll plant an equivalent area of trees somewhere else. I'm, I'm sensing there's just not a whole lot of commercial-type logging in the UK. 
not hugely. There is some, but that's mainly on government land. We have something called the Forestry Commission in the UK, which is an, a part of the government and they own large areas of woodland. And generally they produce uh, quite low quality softwood. Probably pretty much like most of the forests in the West are full of low quality softwood that's either full of beetles or about ready to, ready to, burn. About ready to have fire on it. Yeah, that's right. So let's let's circle back. Let's circle back to you and, and your business. So I think I I think you walked through about four or five years of, of contract sheep grazing. Yeah, custom grazing in the southwest. And I, I was learning a lot and it, it funded a lot of my equipment. Uh, you know, as the business grew, I, I added a four wheeler, a uh, quad bike, we call them. And uh, all all the sheep were behind three strand electric fencing because there was no sheep fencing on the the land I was leasing. And there's a, a firm in the UK called Rapper, which produce a, a system that mounts on the four wheeler, and it will let you deploy up to six hundred meters, six hundred yards of three strand wire, and then take it up again really quickly. There's a fence winder that's powered by the rear wheel of the four wheeler be handy yeah really handy really handy and then uh i put some of the money as well into a dog and i, I got really lucky there to be honest but trained dogs in the uk can be sort of you know five or six thousand dollars oh wow for, for a two or three year old dog and well, that's what they are here and yeah you, know, you add up the time that it takes the man that it takes it. yeah train a good dog Five grand for a two-year-old that that can work and respond—that's a good deal. I mean, honestly, the thought of working sheep without a dog makes me want to vomit. <laughs> it's just awful. I have had uh, some customers that have tried to do so, and and they very quickly contract me in for a, a day to you know do this task, and they just get blown away that what me and the dogs can achieve within a, a couple of hours that would take them you know a few days wow it's really quick but yeah i, I spent a hundred pounds so about 125 dollars on a dog i saw advertised on social media uh, this guy dropped it off for it and 18 month old bitch and i think he just wanted rid of it and i thought i would made a huge mistake i couldn't get near her for two weeks you know if i wanted to put her in the truck i had to put the labrador in and then stand out the way and the collie would jump in after her but having persevered she's she's a real good dog now she, you know she's um coming up eight actually and she's she's sort of been the mainstay of my business for the past six years and uh i was never able to find any summer grazing in gloucestershire that was my limiting factor because it was a dairy area dairy farmers could always outbid me for grass for the summer because they needed somewhere to graze their young stock their replacement heifers and then i saw a job advertised in lincolnshire where i am now which is in the sort of east midlands of the uk and it's quite a crop growing area and it was somebody from scotland that had contracted with a landowner in lincolnshire to have sheep on the farm and i moved up here for a lambing and uh then i was talking to my girlfriend she farms with me and she said well you know if this chap in scotland doesn't know anyone in lincolnshire and he's managed to secure this land why don't we do the same so she drafted a letter and she did some research and we sent that out to everybody in the area that had 
uh, a subsidy claim of half a million pounds or more. Because her thinking was that these people would have large land areas and that's what we needed to access. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we were very fortunate that one of these landowners, well, several of these people got back to us actually. Because traditionally, all large farms in the UK would have some cropping and some livestock, some sheep and cattle and things like that. But when this change in the subsidy came about uh, and that, that inspection, if you had an inspection and one of your sheep's ear tags was wrong or it was missing its ear tag, you could get fined that 5%. So a lot of consultants in the UK said, just get rid of your sheep flocks, guys. And that's what lots of them did. You know, a lot of these cropping farms in the UK now have not had livestock on them for 20 or 30 years. And the guys are finding that their soil is lacking organic matter. You can't yeah, solve definitely. all. You can't solve all of your crop growing problems from a can of spray or a bag of fertilizer. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder when they'll start to figure that out here. I mean, not everyone's doing that. You know, don't get me wrong. There are still farms in the UK that have back-to-back -back wheat and have done for the past 20 years and probably will for the next 20 years until black grass makes it completely unviable. But there are, there are some people that are really interested in it. And a lot of individuals from your area, you know, Gabe Brown, um, Joel Salatin, these sort of people who are very active on social media, are getting the message across internationally and yeah anyway this this landowner came back to us and said yes we would be interested in working with you and we met we met quite a few of them and we we selected one to work with and year one with them uh we had some custom grazing sheep as well but because they were in one of these government schemes we couldn't access their winter cover crops until the 15th of January. So we had a really small window for custom grazing. It was from the 15th of January to the 28th of February. It's 45 days. It's, it's hard to pay. Yeah. It's hard to move them. I mean, for just 45 days. Yeah. Well, it's, it's slightly different in the UK because we're so densely populated. People don't really trail stock anywhere. Right. Unless they're going literally from your field to your neighbor's field, they'll generally go on a lorry. So we've got quite a well-developed network of livestock hauliers. And I was fortunately able to find um, customers for that custom grazed period. But the whole point of our move was to have our own stock. And so that landowner very generously also had some land we could lease through the summer as well. And we were able to purchase some of our own stock but we want a critical mass again straight away you know 10 sheep take as much of a commitment looking after as 200 sheep right so that informed our decision making and we decided we were going to start with a cull you an end of life animal and there's a, a system in the uk where you know i didn't invent it lots of people do it they would buy an animal from a harder farm so one that's higher or has less quality grass or whatever and you'd normally get one more productive ewe out of that animal sorry one more productive year out of that ewe 
mm-hmm. on the better grass in the lowlands before you sell her on again. Because sheep are like cattle, you know, they're born with their baby teeth and then every year they lose two and get two adult teeth. So you get a two tooth, four tooth, six tooth, and then a full mouth. Right. And then at the other end of their life, they start to lose teeth and you get a broken mouth you. So that's what we were targeting, broken mouths use. And we went to Wales, which is an upland area. There's lots of mountains down, lots of mountain sheep. And we attended a few sale barns there. We picked the wrong year completely to do it because cull ewes were making fantastic money. You know, we'd budgeted on sort of 30 to $45 for an animal. And the animals that we were looking at in the sale barn were making upwards of 60. So we couldn't touch Welsh sheep. And we did a bit more researching and talking to people. And we ended up going to the Shetland Islands, which is in the Outer Hebrides. So you've got the UK, you've got England at the bottom, Wales is off to the left. And then you go up and you've got Scotland. Okay. And off the northern tip of Scotland, about 200 miles in to the North Sea, you have a group of islands called the Outer Hebrides, and they're British, and you know, Scottish people live there, and they have a, a, a breed of sheep there called the Shetland sheep, which is the sheep equivalent to the Shetland pony. Okay, it's yeah. It, it's, it's hard going, and they've got horrendous attitude. <laughs> they Shetland ponies do too, yes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So that, um, that slaughter lamb that I was telling you about earlier, they have a live weight of about 70 to 100 pounds. Okay. And our Shetland ewes that we bought had a live weight of about 70 to 80 pounds. So 20% smaller. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they're a lot smaller than these traditional, um, these sort of traditional lowland sheep that could be, you know, 200, 240 pounds. Okay. But they're a lot cheaper and I can stock them higher to the acre because all my demand calculations for grazing when I'm custom grazing stock and now when I'm grazing my own stock is I aim to feed 3% of body weight and dry matter per day. Oh, yeah. That's about <coughs> right. Yeah. Same and that's number how I would say. Yeah. Uh, and everything's on a 72 day, 72 hour paddock. Okay. Why 72 hours? Because when you're on grass, it takes 72 hours to give a, a growth response to a grazing event in the UK. Okay. So if you have that animal on the paddock longer than 72 hours, she will graze that growing shoot and reduce your annual grass production on that acre. Okay. Similar, growing... similar things happen in different time frames here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I was able to use that as a selling point to my arable landowners when I was custom grazing on their cover crops in the winter. But I would spin it in that I was moving 72 hours to avoid, avoid compaction. Right. <coughs> because they, that cost them money. You know, the cover crops that they were growing were for arable soil benefit. So it was a mixed species cover crop to break up compaction and increase soil organic matter. And my sheep were there to further increase organic matter by grazing the cover crop, doing it out, uh, and also to save that arable farmer money because he didn't have to mow that cover crop to prep the ground for the next crop. Right. So right. that 72 hour and 3% live weight is, is sort of key to my business. That's what I base all my calculations on. That's, um, that's not, I mean, 72 hours, like 
so where I'm at right now, I'm moving about every two to three days because, yep. and, and that's more of a timing thing. I'm not taking anywhere close to, to full clip on the forage available, but I'm going to be trying, I'm trying to go all the way around in about 25 days, 25, 28 yes. days. And by the time I get right back around 25, 28 days, we'll be down into summer. This episode will probably have been out for a week or two, and I'm going to slam on the brakes because we're anticipating drought. Like, that's the plan right now. It could always start raining and I'll change the plan. But uh, the plan is to slow down, you know, more like a five to seven day graze in each paddock to make sure I've got long, long season rest behind me. Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, so we started. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. So we started with these Shetland sheep, and yeah, they're cheap and they're small. I mean, we were buying these sheep for, well, we could get them onto the farm for about thirty-five dollars per head, which is you know very very cheap. If I was to buy one of these lowland sheep that I described previously as a a two-tooth animal, so a, a prime breeding Shetland, a prime breeding female, sorry, that would cost me over $200. Okay. So I can achieve that critical mass for a lower capital input. But the Shetland sheep is not very commercial because I've spoken to um, US producers and your cattle are aged by, what is it, calcification of the throat bones at the, at the killing plant? Uh, that sounds, sounds about right. I'm not cash, cash cattle. Really. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure how they do that, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in the UK, prime lamb are aged by the cutting of their adult teeth. If you get a, an animal that erupts its teeth, that's no longer a prime lamb. That's a cull you. Okay. So that means the carcass has to be split and, and the value of that carcass is decreased by 25 to 60%. Wow. To the producer. Yeah. Obviously, to the consumer at the retailer, there's no shelf that says call you. Right. you can buy yeah. cheap meat. Where it's 60% cheaper than, than the premium product. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my Shetland use bread pure aren't going to achieve the necessary weight within that time cutoff. Uh, and also, they've got a small litter size and their carcass shape generally is, is quite poor because slaughter animals here are graded on their carcass shape. We have something called the Europe grid. And the, the confirmation of the carcass is graded E, U, R, O, or P, with E being the best and P being the worst. And then there's a flat class uh, court classification down the other axis from one to four, with one being the thinnest and four being the fattest. And then three and four are split into two subcategories of L and H. So the, the base price, when you get quoted a, a price from the abattoir, the base price will be for a R3L carcass. So kind of a mid-grade. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably roughly equivalent to like a, a USDA. What are your grades again? Was it prime select? Oh, Prime select choice. Choices. Choice, yeah. So, yeah. Middle. So the R3L will be about choice, you know, in the middle. And then mm -hmm. if you exceed that, you'll get a bonus 
on your price per kilo could be up to 20 pence a kilo. And similarly, if you if you are worse than that, you get docked pence per kilo. And those docks can be quite savage. But that carcass classification is purely based on confirmation and fat class. There is no eating quality assessment of lamb or beef in the UK at point of slaughter. Okay. So there's no shear testing. There's there's no marbling grading. Nothing like that. Uh, and I think we're missing a huge trick as an industry. Okay. Because eating quality drives consumer demand. Right. Without it, they'll they'll look to cheaper proteins such as pork or chicken. So what do you like about your Shetland sheep? They're cheap and they're very, very maternal. Same things I like about my Coriones. Yeah, they're, they're very similar, I should think. Uh, and also for their size, they have very wide pelvic apertures. Mm. For their size. And for me, a, a low labor input outdoor lambing system is key to my sheep production system. You and your partner, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Rosie. Yeah. Yeah. Although she's currently away lambing our sheep at the moment. Yeah. But um, with the right system, one labour unit can lamb in excess of a thousand females uh, and still achieve really good low rates of mortality of both lambs and ewes, provided you've got the right genetics, the right feeding prior to lambing, and you have the right lambing paddocks selected. What are some so, of your, any tips you want to share? Shelter. Okay. Yeah, you, you've got to have, um, to be fair, the, probably the best thing to do would be to recommend anyone interested in outdoor lambing success, listen to the Head Shepherd podcast with Tim Leeming, Precision Lambing. Okay, uh, let me make that note. I'll try to get that in the show notes. Head Shepherd podcast. Yep, and then the Precision Lambing episode with Tim Leeming. So okay. Head Shepherd's a chap called Mark Ferguson, who's a runs Next Gen Agri. It's a New Zealand-based <coughs> company. It's a lot of knowledge transfer for for Antipodean farmers, for sheep and beef farmers in New Zealand and Australia. Hey, I'll make sure we get a link and, in the uh, show notes. Oh, awesome! Thank you. Yeah, so the, the, the key factors that he identified there are you age, you mortality increases dramatically after six and a half years. And unfortunately, there's not much I can do to mitigate that currently because I'm buying those animals because they're so cheap. And then um, feeding, so body condition at point of lambing wants to be about a three on the five point scale. So okay. you'll use not thin she's not too fat because over fat use can cause lambing difficulties as the abdominal fat narrows the pelvic aperture but she doesn't want to be too thin because she's got to have some body reserve to milk off especially if your grass quality isn't there and then uh, grass quality and mob size if you can have your mob size at 50 or below for your twin bearing females that helps reduce the amount of mismothering Okay. But uh, yeah, the, so the breeding program, I've got a vision for the sort of female, for the sort of you I want. 
uh, and I sat down a few years ago and sort of came up with this. And it, I want an animal that um, sheds her fleece because wool has, it's a loss maker in the UK currently. Okay. I, I was going to ask, what do you do with the wool? Is there a market for wool and how does that work? But I guess you just answered that question. Your sheep shed, so you don't have to peel them. They don't shed yet, but my my ultimate aim is to have a shedding sheep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Shetlands don't quite shed. I mean, Shetlands nearly shed traditionally. They weren't clipped. Their fleece was harvested by a sort of a plucking method called rewing. So they have they have a certain amount of shedding genetics within them. But currently, I shear the sheep annually pre-lambing. Okay. Oh, yeah. What do you uh, do? You market the wool, or is, do you just toss it? I just sell it direct to a to a processor. I, I wholesale it to a processor. If I was if I had more buy-in to the wool, I could make a better job of it and try and direct retail it a lot. But, but it's quite you're a lot going the other direction. Yeah, exactly. It's not my focus. So how are you doing that? There are sheep breeds in the UK that um, shed their fleece. Okay. What are some of them? I've never heard of that. Uh, the Exelana, which is a, an open composite. Exelana is Latin for without wool. And it's a, a breeding company based in the Southwest. It's a really interesting model for sheep and beef producers in the UK. I think there's a, a group of five or six farmers that have formed a sort of cooperative and they're adding significant value to their lamb crop because they fully performance record from birth. Then all their lambs, male and female, and they're identifying key traits and they've got genomic testing. And they're now retailing those lambs, those rams as, as breeding males. They have an on-farm auction and they also do private sales. And they're, they're achieving, you know, really good clearance rates for that on-farm auction. So that, um, that fat lamb that I, I described earlier, that 100-pound live weight, which be retailing so it would be wholesaling for sort of you know 378 pounds so what's that 370 dollars right <coughs> x lana will keep those animals an extra 12 months uh, maybe they'll kill the bottom half of them but that top half they will retail as breeding males for four times that figure wow that's uh that that seems like a pretty good market to have yeah, definitely. And they, they were the first to offer a, a proper commercial shedding sheep in the UK. And there are a couple of other companies now that are also offering, uh, apologies, they're the first to offer a performance recorded shedding sheep in the UK. The original concept of shedding sheep was uh, developed and popularized by a Welsh farmer <coughs> called Yolo Owen. And, and he developed a breed called the easy care which is now a trademark name and that's in its initial iteration it was a crossbreed between the wiltshire horn which is a native breed to the uk which sheds its fleece and the welsh mountain sheep which has quite a, a coarse hair type fleece anyway and he, he started that back in the 70s he was really quite a visionary but the the one thing that i think i've learned to date is that and I'm probably going to upset some people, breeds are almost irrelevant. Unless you have a really big premium on a breed, 
you know, on a breed name on a brand like the, the Angus appears to have in the US. Right. Or, or Wagyu, for example. Um, nobody really cares. Like, the, you don't get a consumer that goes to the supermarket and specifically asks for a Texel lamb chop or for a, a Charolais beefsteak. <coughs> so, what matters are traits and genes. So these Shetland sheep, I want to breed them up into the U I want. I want a, an animal that's um, that's about 150 pounds in weight. She sheds her fleece. She has excellent teeth and feet. And she will have a litter size in excess of 200%. So when we talk about um, litter size in the UK, it's scanning. It's expressed as a percentage in terms of fetuses scanned per hundred ewes put to the ram. So if I've got a hundred ewes and then I scan, I put them all to the ram and I scan um, 150 fetuses, that's 150%. But there's a lot of um, manipulation of that figure happens across the industry because some people will quote it, but they will have already excluded all the ewes that scanned empty. Well, of course. Like that. Yeah, yeah, they can, they can bump their figures. But I want that 200% figure to include every animal put to the ram. Okay. And then I've also um, want to mitigate that Shetland carcass, that poor Shetland carcass shape. <coughs> so I've got a, a stud breeding program whereby I'm selecting shedding type sheep with a hair type coat as, as sort of seed stock because I think that a hair type coat sheds better than a, than a woolly fleece. You know, I don't want an animal that grows a lot of fleece and then sheds it. I want an animal that doesn't grow that fleece at all. So we're looking for something that's eventually going to have a hair coat like a catadin or, or like a, a dog, you know, like a Labrador or something like that. Because if you look at the, the wild sheep, the closest thing we've got to a wild sheep in the UK is the chamois, which is a, a sort of, it looks a bit like a goat, like antelope, but it doesn't have wool. Wool is not natural. No, I think we bred that in and bred for that for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. But it has a huge economic cost because not only you've got to shear the damn things, you've also got to uh, crutch them. So you've got to clip out their back ends, you know, in a, like a little horseshoe shape around the top of the tail because otherwise they can collect feces there and that can attract flies and maggots. Right. Because sheep can get fly struck. And then um, sheep have a lot of porn in the UK applied to them because lowland sheep during the hot, sweaty weather, can they excrete something called swint, which is part lanolin and a few other things. But that attracts blowflies, which will then lay their eggs on the fleece. And then those maggots will hatch and they will actually eat into the living flesh of the, the sheep. That's not fun. And they, no, no. And they will kill it really quickly. You know, there's, there's obviously a huge animal welfare aspect there. And also there's a massive economic cost. And then similarly, if an animal's glowing fleece, it's not putting on fat and meat. You know, that energy should be directed towards growing carcass or lambs in the case of a pregnant female. Right. So that's, that's why I want hair sheep. And to mitigate the Shetland's poor litter size, I, I could quite naturally breed from more prolific females. 
but the inheritance of litter size is quite low. So if if um one is is your sort of guaranteed inheritance, it's one hundred percent. The performance recording shown that the inheritance of litter size is about 0.15 to 0.2, so it's it's a real slow burn. But there are specific prolificity genes that exist within sheep populations, uh, and the one I've selected is a gene called Inverdale because I've got access to it quite easily through my customers. So a single copy of that gene, which is found only on the female chromosome, will increase litter size by 60%. So that's a, that's a really dramatic jump. So my pure Shetlands will scan approximately 120 to 140%. Okay. Uh, and it would, it would take, you know, upwards of 10 generations to increase that to 180%, which is thought to be the, the most optimum for an outdoor lambing system. Because ideally, you would want every ewe to have twins, which would be a 200% scan. But obviously, that doesn't happen. You will get some singles, and then you will get a lot of triplets if you go above 180%. Because the, the thing that controls litter size in sheep is number of eggs ovulated, number of eggs fertilized, and the number of those fertilized eggs which implant and stay alive for till point of birth. So a proportion of singles will have started pregnancy as twins, and a proportion of twins will have started pregnancy as triples. Okay. So we've got we've got to have that ovulation there to to give them, you know, they've got to ovulate and be fertilized to have a chance of implanting. So that's where the Inverdale gene comes in. But it's a little complicated because it's only found on the X chromosome. So if I've got an Inverdale ram, all of his daughters will carry Inverdale. So it's a really powerful tool because it's a, it's a single cross and I've immediately got what I want in terms of fertility. However, <coughs> two copies of that Inverdale gene will render the female sterile. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so it's... That definitely rules out line breeding. <laughs> well, no, not necessarily, because if I have an Inverdale ewe and I put her to an Inverdale ram, she's only got one copy of the Inverdale gene. So if you look at the Mendelian genetics window, half her daughters will be double Inverdale and sterile, but half her daughters will be single Inverdale and fertile. Okay, yeah. And 80% of those sterile daughters can be identified because they have deformed nipples so when you handle that as a as a young lamb you can turn it over quite easily and you'll be able to identify its its nipples and therefore it's sterile and you can tag it accordingly and record it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal to work around then no and the, the 20 percent that you miss they just won't cycle because the the double copy affects the hormone production in the ovaries so that animal will just never eustress. They'll scan as a donut and you put her on the sort yeah, of thing. Exactly. Yep. As long as you expose those animals to a ram in their first year of life, you can still finish those as a meat animal. And you don't even have to go to the expense of scanning them. If you're going to run a dry mob of you lambs and not make them until they're 18 months old as two tooths, you could put vasectomy teased out there with rattles on them. Yeah, and they just won't mark your sterile use because they'll never cycle, so they won't get jumped. But, yeah, 
and you can sort those <laughs> off the sort off the ones that aren't marked yeah definitely although to be fair i expose to breed all of my females in their first year fertility drives the bus exactly the two biggest profit drivers in ruminant production are fertility and growth rates and nutrition has a uh, an effect on both of them but only insofar as adequate nutrition enables that animal to express its genetic potential right and then the second gene that we're using is uh, the myomax gene which is very equivalent to the myostatin gene in cattle so one copy increases my lean meat yield by five to seven percent, and two copies by ten to fifteen percent. Okay. So that should effectively bump my carcasses up one confirmation grade. And, and we've got six, no, seven rams on the farm currently. So myostatin is and double muscling, right? Yeah, yeah, it's double muscling. Yeah. So it, it improves your carcass confirmation without giving you any dystopia so there's no more birthing difficulties because lambing ease is key we run a low labor input system and i can't sell a dead lamb right so how's your breeding how many years have you been working on this breeding program this is our third year lambing how's it working for you so far it's really exciting so mm. in year one we had a small stud group of eight of these performance recording hair sheep that we mated with the Inverdale ram. But I, I heard slightly in that I went to the hills of Scotland for my uh, hair sheep. And then I brought them down to the, the sort of lowland, wetter areas of the UK, of England. And out of those eight, three of them uh, were affected by, by blowflies and didn't see the tail by cold them. So we're, we're absolutely ruthless with our culling. That's the, the biggest and easiest win for improving a group of livestock. The, the bad one's is, out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the um, cull mark is an ear notch. So we just we have a pair of like culling pliers and we just clip the, the tip of the left ear. And both Rosie and I live with those on our belts. And if we have to give an, an individual animal attention for whatever reason, she gets cull marked and she'll go fat at the next opportunity. It's good policy. Yeah, and because of this short generational interval of sheep, we can see genetic gain really fast. So in year one, all of our Shetlands went to shedding sheep. And uh, this small group of um, performance recorded air sheep went to the Inverdale Ram. And the, the idea would be that they would produce Inverdale daughters and then we would produce, we would have to put a, a hair sheep over those Inverdale daughters to give me my ram that has Inverdale and double myomax and is a hair sheep. Okay. But it's, it's a little complicated, but, but bear with me. So those Shetland cross hair sheep G1s, they were a, a really fine bunch of sheep, to be honest. We were really happy with them. <clears throat> but because it was our first year running our own stock, we didn't quite feed them well enough in the first year. So there weren't very many that we were happy to breed as, as ewe lambs. But we ended up with a packet of 200 
of these G1 yearlings, so two tooths, September of last year. And um, we actually sold them off farm because I, I listened to one of these podcasts and there's an interview with a chap from Australia. It's a head shepherd one. It's called um, Turning Water into Grass. And it's Nigel Kyron of Kerenag, and he's in a, a drought area. And he says, do not be confused as a livestock producer. Wealth is not how many animals you're holding on your inventory. Wealth is cash in the bank. That, that's why we do it. And if you're driving the paddock and you look at an animal, you should always think, <coughs> how much would it cost me to buy that animal through the sale barn today? And if that price is more than you're willing to pay, well, you can't afford to earn that animal, so you better sell it. Put her on the bus, take her to the barn. That's it. So those those G1 females as yearlings, you know, those Shetland ewes that had cost me $35. And then I bought privately some, some hair sheep ram lambs to go over them. So they'd cost me $175, but they went in at one to a hundred. <clears throat> so my sire price was effectively $1.75. Those two tooth females we sold for just under $200 from a real low input system. And that's what you've got to do. You've just got to take the money out when you can and then use that to reinvest. Uh, and that funded our next round of Shetland buying because we generally buy a, a an Arctic load, of, a four-deck, a lorry load of Shetlands every year from the island, which is about five to 600 females. And then year two, all those Shetland females went to the hair sheep again. And the previous year's Shetland females were sold. They went to slaughter. And um, flock depreciation was about zero there. I was able to get my purchase price back in, in slaughter money, really. That's always nice. Yeah, it's, it, it's good. It's good. But we, um, we ran on some Shetland ewes for a second year, and it was a terrible mistake. You can have, you can have a, an animal that looks superb in the autumn, and you think, yeah, we'll give her another chance, even though she's got no teeth. You know, she'll read you a good lamb, and you, you'll take a chance on it, and she'll repay you by dying in March or February <laughs> when you've put all the input cost into her, and you've carried her all winter. Two or three days before you pull out, put the bulls out, she'll fall over dead. Yeah. Sounds like something that happened to me. That's it. Yeah. So those Shetlands again went to hair sheep and we got a really good crop of uh, ewe lambs and learning from the previous year, we made a much better job of feeding these animals through paddock grazing and, and proper pasture allocation. So we've got about a, a 50% breed up on our first year ewe lambs this year and it's really exciting to see those born because they're now a G2 and we've got the Biomax in there again and then with the stud program this is the first year that we could potentially have this Inverdale double Myomax hair sheep ram born but there's only three females that are eligible to give birth to that animal and um They've lambed at 266%, so we got a twin and two triplets. That twin was a, a ram lamb and a ewe lamb, so brilliant. We'll test him later down the line. The triplet was a ram lamb and two ewe lambs, but then one of the ewe lambs was predated. 
that's fine. We still got a round man to test. And then the the last one, the triplet prolapsed, pre-lamming. Uh. But it's it's not the end of the world. You can you can put it back in and then fit it with a harness that'll sort of hold it together to the point of lambing. But are you going to keep that ram out of her though? Even if he's no, no, absolutely not. Because we've had to give individual attention to that animal, so she gets the cull mark and, and all her progeny will go as well. And of course, sod's law, she's had triplet ram lambs. well it feels easy everybody be doing it right yeah exactly exactly and it's it's character building yeah yeah Yeah, uh, i've heard some of my uh sheep raising friends in this country yes i i have some of those tell me that tell me the same thing when they have to make a call they call the whole line yeah like even if it's even if it's some, uh, I think it was uh, my friend Nick Voss told me this that even if like a year down the road or two years down the road he has a mother that prolapses and he has her daughters in a herd, they go with her. We're not that extreme purely because we don't track the lines like that. But definitely, that that individual female at that point will go and then any daughters that show herself to prolapse further down the line they'll go as well but we don't track uh, female lines in the commercial flock like that currently and that's that's just being a responsible breeder honestly yeah people in the uk think that we're quite harsh because we're so hard with our culling but rosie and i take the view that Good welfare is breeding an animal that's fit for purpose. Good welfare is not having an animal that requires huge amounts of inputs and then chucking all those inputs at it to make it perform. 100% with you. And um, my ewes are quite low value in purchase price and they have a corresponding low cull price. So I would not hesitate to euthanize an animal on farm. And I'm very secure in the fact that I can safeguard welfare at every stage of my production cycle and keep my vet costs down. I'm not going to be paying, you know, $350 an hour to get my vet out at eight o'clock on a Sunday night to look at an animal. If Rosie and I can't treat it and ensure its welfare is met, we can just shoot it. Yeah. I, I know people that haul their cows to the vet and have a $5,000 cast put on a cow, like, or five, yeah, you know, a very expensive surgery done. Like, yep. Okay. I, and as long as they're, you know, keeping up with the pain relief and that animal has a good prognosis, that welfare animal, the welfare needs of that animal are met. But economically, I can't make those figures add up. I can't make it work economically either. No. So, we can just shoot her and I still have to pay £10 to dispose of the carcass, but 10 is better than, you know, 250. 10 is probably a lot better than whatever the government fine would be. And then, yeah, and that, definitely. And then this year, all of our Shetlands have gone to the Inverdale, which is a woolly lamb, but that is a, a better carcass meat lamb. Pardon me. Because, um, Circling back to that 
subsidy claim and that you have to be in control of land for 365 days, landowners will not surrender that without somebody else accessing the subsidy and then giving it to the landowner a rent payment. So all of our land that we've accessed is on leases 364 days or less. So you have to move out for one day. Yeah, or, or our, our land holding is very fluid because we've got no security on that land. Somebody else at 360 days could come and say, yes, Mr. Landowner, I will pay you an extra $10 an acre. And so our, our lease won't be renewed and they will have the lease instead. That would be, um, what did you call it? A character building? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, this is why my sheep are currently being custom grazed uh, 200 miles away from where I am now. It's just time that you just had to move on. like. Yeah, well, we, um, we thought we had a long-term arrangement with a landowner and then... Um, it, it like, turned out they were not a landowner that we would like to have a long-term relationship with. But we that found that out. In, yeah, but we found that out um, two weeks before our current lease was due to expire. So we didn't have a lot of time left to secure new leases. So At least I, I, it wasn't two weeks after you signed a new one. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But um, I've, I've put my sheep out to a custom grazer, which is um, a little ironic. Yes. <laughs> and I am very much not enjoying being on the other side of that arrangement. Yeah, honestly, if it doesn't get some rain here, I might be having to send my girls out somewhere to find another place to eat and work for a while. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll imagine I'll probably, well, we might have to do this again. And you'll tell me how to get through that, like emotionally of you know, the full circle switch, starting off on custom grazing on leased land, owning your own stock, and then having to send them out so somebody else gets to take care of them for a while. I, I'm not sure how to cope with it emotionally, to be honest. Alcohol. No, Rosie's away lambing now, and then she'll, um, we'll go down periodically to carry out management tasks between now and weaning. Okay. And then we're due to have those animals back um, the end of September, where we will move on to cover crops again with our arable landowners. Okay. So what else you got coming up? Uh, anything exciting going on you want to tell us about? Yeah, there's, there's loads of really exciting things going on, to be honest. We've got our breeding program. We've got our stock. Uh, we're continuing to look with, for the, light, the right landowner to work with long term. And um, really, that search is, is international. You know, I, I quite happily look at anywhere apart from um, Africa. Rosie's not keen on Africa for security concerns. And I think Eastern Europe's not very secure at the moment. Uh, yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I would probably stay out of Eastern Europe for the foreseeable short future. Maybe you get really good leases, though. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But... Um, yeah, I, I'm really keen, and we're both quite adventurous, so we'd, we'd be happy to go anywhere, really. We're, we're supposed to be talking to a, a large landowner in Washington in the next month or so. Okay. Washington State? Yeah, Washington State, yeah, he's a, a dry land farmer there. And, I mean, from our research, the, the U.S. sheep market is really ripe for expansion. So from um, 
2010 to 2022, US sheep imports have increased from 160 million pounds to 360 million pounds. You know, they've increased by over 100%. The two fastest growing demographic groups in the United States are Latinos and Muslims. Yep. And they both, both love lamb. Yes. And I, yeah. I think I've said it on this podcast before, but you know, you find the right group of them. They pay cash and come out and pick one out of the herd on I've, the hoof yeah. and take it with them. And yes. you don't have to do anything other than take the money. Well, there's a, I read a, a Nuffield Scholar report, which I find fascinating. Are you aware of them? The Nuffield Scholars? No. So it's, a, it's an international group of farmers and you, you can apply to become one of them every year. It's like a scholarship and you propose a thesis and they fund you to travel internationally and, and meet producers in whatever your topic is. And then you write a report and that report's published online. And there are really fascinating range of subjects. There's one I read, which inspired me to do what I do. And he's called Mike Blanche and his report's called The Farming Ladder. And he was a, a first generation or a new entrant farmer and it explores how he could go from being a grazier to a farm owner or, or how that system could work in the UK. And um, unfortunately, the, the conclusion he comes to is it doesn't. And, and you can't because the land value in the UK is, is so divorced from its agricultural production potential because of tax advantages. Yep. And, and it's an investment class of its own. It's the same situation <laughs> by and large here that land is seen as an investment and the value of that land is is it's totally decoupled from production value. And to some extent, I guess, um, well, it is. It's it's pretty much basically total, totally decoupled for production value. There was some land in Iowa that sold for like $20,000 an acre, agricultural land for $20,000 an acre. And I think I saw somebody said that you'd have to raise 300 bushel corn for the next seven years without any machinery or depreciation cost or input cost to pay for the land. Right. Yeah. It's, we're, it's interesting that, you know, we're, we're going down some of these same roads that, you know, land price totally decoupled from production value and, you know, having more taxes, but, Oh, we'll get that back in subsidies. Oh, well, there's this program. You know, we're, we're starting to see some of that. Um, but I don't want to discourage you from looking at moving over here. There's tremendous opportunities, I think, in the sheep market. There's not sheep sale barns, but I, well, I, if he goes to Washington, he'll be close to Superior. Is uh, well, tell me about that. I, I well, I guess it's not a sale barn. Never mind. Yeah, I don't know. I, I have read of some um, producer cooperatives in the U state in the states that have funded their own processing facility i would probably be more likely to invest in a sheep and lamb processing facility at this point than i would a beef than a big beef processing facility (laughs) definitely well i mean i think you said on your previous podcast that most of the ranches in the west were paid for by sheep yeah um 
that's that's not a quote from me i heard it on i heard it up from the podfather first and he'll okay, probably yeah. he could probably tell you who he heard it from yeah of course but like you say that there's huge opportunities and that latino market particularly is really interesting because one of these nuffield scholar reports i read referenced a pair of swiss brothers that have a farm in mexico it's not a very big farm at all it's maybe 300 acres and they have a phenomenally productive sheep flock on that 300 acres several thousand breeding females and they are irrigating alfalfa and strip grazing the sheep on irrigated alfalfa and the genetics of that animal they are having an accelerated breeding program so normally sheep breed once a year because estrus is controlled by the hormone melatonin which is influenced by daylight length so they would breed in the autumn when the days get shorter to lamb in the spring yeah but there are some breeds that will breed year-round and you can exploit that by having these animals produce three crops of lambs in two years or for the very top tier two crops of lambs a year and, and these Swiss brothers on this irrigated alfalfa farm are direct retailing their entire production. So every lamb is sold. There's some sort of um, Mexican coming of age festival, like party, like a super sweet 16 Mexican style. And for that, the family would buy a lamb and eat it. You know. <clears throat> so their entire lamb crop of several thousand years direct retailed into Mexico City. And their coal use are sold for nearest damn it the same price as well. Well, like you said, lots of opportunity, lots of opportunity, lots of economic opportunity, um, and a lot of ranches, you know, that have cows. You can put sheep under cows and not even notice that the cows might yes. not even notice they're there. Definitely. So, well, Alex, it's uh, I know it's getting late for you. You're ready yeah, to get out of here? I'm, I'm happy enough, you know. I've got no pressing engagements. Saturday tomorrow, I've got a rare day off. Day off. off? I know. Well, I've, I've got no stock, so I'm working off farm currently. I, um, I can drive a truck or, you know, work on a building site, but my trucking hours are limited by law, so I have to have a day off tomorrow. Well, I just uh, got a bunch of customer cattle on the place, so... I don't get a day off for a while. <laughs> <laughs> How is your induction procedure on that? When your sort of um, when your customer cattle arrive, are they electric fence trained? Uh, yes. Or, or do you have to go through quite a painful process to? <clears throat> Brought me a bunch of old dry cows that he's had on um, on some river bottom cover crops behind hot wire. Right. All, okay, all yeah. winter. So they, you know, they're used to hot wire. They're used to being, you know, they're used to seeing a gate moving every couple of days, you know, moving pretty often. So we yeah. brought them in, um, brought them in on a couple pots. Lorries, I think is what you call them. About 40 head yeah. per, um, unloaded them into the, into the corral, let them settle for about, about 30 minutes. Just got them nice and settled in, um, turn them out. I called them and they followed my side by side a mile and a half through, Two barbed wire fences and three electric fences um, up to where my cows were. Steel gates. Yeah. Anyhow. Took about uh, took about forty five minutes to get them trailed a mile and a half or so. 
ideal, eh? Yeah, yeah. Just a just a nice afternoon cowboying in the Red Hills. When I was custom grazing for my Welsh customers in Gloucestershire, the older ewes would be much as you described. But that year's crop of ewe lambs, some of them had never seen a fence before, never mind an electric fence. So I always had an exciting week or so to get them trained in. The customer cows that I have on the south side that have been calving since the 1st of March, um, it's been interesting trying to keep fence up because, you know, those little, those brand new baby calves, if you have a fence short enough for them, the cow can just step over it. So I just keep them all at cow height. Fine. The babies, they can run back and forth under wherever they want to go. They can run and go play. I don't get too concerned about it. Well, some of his cows, I don't know how to say this because I know he listens. I'm not going to say they're dopey, but they remember where their babies are. But when he shows up with the feed truck, sometimes they run off from their baby or their baby will run off from them. And then they want to go find their baby and they'll just jump a fence or, you know, run through it. So it's it's been kind of a fight keeping them in. But the last two, uh, the last week and a half, they've stayed where I put them. So it's been, <laughs> that's been kind of a relief. Mine. Yeah. Mine, mine would stay behind dental floss. If they thought I had it, a hot wire hook or an energizer hooked up to it. And are you carving cows for your customers? Um, you provide the labor to carve their cows or. I calve cows kind of like you pasture calve your sheep. I go look at them once a day. Yeah. Okay. You know, it, uh, a friend of mine on social media, brought up a really good point you know yeah if you live on the ranch and you can walk outside and you can check your cows fine but if you're driving 10 15 miles to go check your cows that's cost of your time and that's wear and tear on your vehicle and what does that cost you just to go look at your cows yeah exactly so um you know and and tim understands that he's he's on the low input train he's on the he's on He's on board. Excellent. No, because I've I've done quite a few contract lambings for customers, and, and most of them have been really successful. But there was one which was particularly horrific, and it was somebody that I wasn't aligned with in, in terms of low input, and he was expecting um, my fixed cost labour to be unlimited almost, and to make up for the. Um, shortfall in his genetics so it's so important to find the right people to work with yes yes and to be fair i've I've worked with this with this gentleman before tim and i have had we've done business before and it was a it was a fantastic deal so that's why we're that's why i went ahead and did this alex is there was there anything else on your list that we didn't get to today no not really i mean if anyone's wanting to speak to me either about an opportunity or just for some advice or you know if they need my assistance in sourcing some of the genetics i've talked about for hair sheep not my breeding because i'm not there yet but the Xlana group or even if you have a wool sheep producer i've got some contract customers that are producing some quite high quality romney sheep which are a dual purpose meat and and wool you know i'm very happy to speak to anyone really okay and i can be contacted through my email address which is sheep at sheepleap.com, but leap has two E's, like a sheep. 
Make sure that gets in the show notes for everybody. Oh, that's great, Brian. I appreciate it. Anything else you want me to get in there? You want me to put the uh, want me to put your Twitter link in there? Yeah, please, yeah. All right. Do, yeah. Will do. Well, Alex, we sure appreciate your time this afternoon, this evening, and uh no, let you go. Great to meet you both. Enjoy your Friday night. Thanks very Enjoy much. your day off tomorrow. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, guys. I'll speak to you soon. Take care. All right, gang. Y'all have a great week. Bye.